You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Hello everyone, welcome back to Arsenal Pass, episode 126. Your host, Hayden Dale here, Brennan Patrick. Brennan, how are you? Good, good. How have you been, Hayden? You sound, uh, you sound delightful right now, actually. Frog in my throat, as they say. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit sick. Oh, I feel like role reversal. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I feel like they they don't refer to it as a frog. It was a mushroom. Wait, no, okay, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, been a little bit unwell the last couple of days, unfortunately. Um, maybe it's coincided with not playing Flesh and Blood. Who knows? But uh, yeah, no, no, no. It's uh, all things are okay. Otherwise, episode 126. I said, Brendan, this week we're doing a bit of a bit of a fundamentals pod. We're going to be looking at, you know, the reasons you aren't winning events. That's the title of the pod. That's a little bit, you know, on the nose maybe. But uh, I think this is an interesting topic. It's something that I think comes from our learnings over the last few events, over the last couple of years. And I think the things we're going to talk about really extends from, you know, be it armory level, pro quest level, battle hardens, callings, even pro tours. And we're going to look into the things in this pod that we think can apply at any level. And the reasons why people, you know, yourself included, ourselves included, might not be converting to win events. You know, what are the reasons separating some of the highest level players, our national champions, our pro tour champions, and and the rest of the rest of the pack? Uh, rest of the wolf pack, yeah. Um, <laughs> I just like to extrapolate my philosophy in life, which is it's everyone else's fault. Uh, no, but in terms of let's let's jump into weeks in flesh and blood. So you're definitely taking a break from Fab, obviously off the you know off of you at. Australian Nationals. I recorded mm. a deck tech with Peter today, so can a deck tech going up soon. Um, Peter did an amazing, an amazing um, set of pieces for us to put up on Patreon, both a very detailed guide, sideboard guide, tips and tricks, uh, all that kind of stuff, but also went through all of the math on a spreadsheet for like all the different Kano combo lines you can do, even the unusual ones, right? So when you're using Aether Flare in between Aether Wildfire, when you don't have Wildfire, et cetera, et cetera, actually makes it super easy because you can find other heuristic-based numbers, by the way, Hayden, um, that uh, you can reference in the future. Actually, it's really just useful for Kanoker because Kanoker you can call like a 40 or a 38. It, it's great. Uh, but no, Peter went above and beyond. Great player. Uh, and so that Kano deck deck will be coming up very soon. In terms of my week in Flesh and Blood, also taking a break, I've been playing, I was talking to Hayden about this earlier, been playing Lorcana Constructed. So when I first played Lorcana, it was like, <clears throat> it was kind of like underpowered vanilla garbage. Not going to lie. And this is coming from someone who's in, invested in content creation for the game. But playing Constructed, has actually been really fun. They have this like community client called Pixelborn and it is ridiculous. Like it's very, very good. Like it feels like, like you're playing like a Runeterra client, obviously a bit bootstrap at that, but unbelievably good leaderboards, MMR, matchmaking, everything. Um, anyway, constructed is actually pretty fun. Uh, I don't know. It's, they have, they have, it's like vanilla tutus and then they have, you know, like uh wheel of fortune, Joda brutality esque cards, like JM Dayton, like all these like crazy powerful cards. So the decks are actually somewhat mid to high powered and, um, it's pretty fun. So I, I, I don't know. I just want to bring that up because I was surprised that I was actually enjoying the game. Um, I thought it would be similar to what we experienced, you know, a couple months ago, Hayden, when we were both playing with our, our decks we took from the spoilers, like, Oh yeah. Whew, this game is ass. 
<laughs> I think I played four games and and just uh, threw the proxies back at at Sasha and said, "All right, let's go to dinner." <laughs> uh, actually, I think I said, "Let's play more of your game." Yeah. To be honest, is like, I think what I said to Sasha. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, my week in flesh and blood, like you say, taking a bit of a, a break this week. I also filmed a deck tech for the draw my deck that uh, a few of us took to nationals, uh, top eights and top fours. So you can check that out on the Arsenal Pass YouTube channel. There's also a full cyborg guide and matchup guide on uh, the Patreon. Um, it's funny. I was talking to Brendan before the pod as well. They they did an ELO update post, you know, the week one of, of nationals. And I was saying to Brendan, uh, you know, I went top four of my nationals. I lost 15 ELO, Brendan. <laughs> 11 and three. Right. We were talking about the... the the elo system a little bit and ultimately like it, it doesn't matter right it's just um it's interesting to see and it, it comes in in different i think formats as well so i think i, I went slightly positive in, in cc and then and lost quite a lot in, in limited for mm-hmm. the four turn limited but i was super high on the limited leaderboard so that was a you know i really wanted to hit that i was hoping i could maybe like pull out like a 6-0 draft and, and, and top that limited leaderboard take out yuha who's been sitting at the top of that limited leaderboard but yeah. i'll have to wait uh have to wait to worlds now i think yeah i have a, I have a funny anecdotal story around the elo leaderboard so back at Pro Tour 1, when the ratings were even more wild, I went 4-3, so technically positive, and I lost hundreds, <laughs> hundreds. It was yeah. crazy. Um, but, you know, that just frees you up. It takes off the mental load. Now you can finally okay. go play your Road to Nationals and your Pro Quest that you couldn't before. With Kano. Yes, with Kano. <laughs> the, the shackles are off. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we're going to see the elo system as we get more events and obviously more elo into into the 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 wild so to speak um obviously that'll flesh out and it'll be the system that obviously there's invitations based around it of course for uh pro tours and worlds and stuff as well so you know it is important to 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 a lot of people for qualifications that way um you know ultimately I think where it is right now, it's like a, it's like a nice to be like, yeah, you know, like I've, I've topped this or I'm in the top 10 or whatever it is. And that's a really nice, mm-hmm. I think kind of reward to see your name up there. Um, and obviously with those, those invitation based ratings as well, but I think it's kind of, you know, there's a long way for the ELO system to go. Yeah. Um, and the K value, depending on like a pro tour versus like a, a pro quest, for instance, I do wonder if they will, will add more ratings based events or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of tweak the K values a little bit, but um, yeah. we'll, we'll see. I wish it honestly, um, I wish it was more prestigious to be higher at ELO in Flesh and Blood. They do have the leaderboard system and the ratings. So you can see yeah. it on the website. But um, it'd be cooler if they had like a, you know, additional things for people in the top 10, top 50, top 100, um, you know, maybe things to do at the events, you know, ways to be recognized. Because right now, yeah, maybe I, I could be in a little echo chamber or a bubble, but it doesn't seem like it matters very much. It's just kind of like you get your invite and like that's that's really what you're shooting for. Um, it, it would be cool if they, they sort of doubled down and made it a bit more prestigious and I think invested into that leaderboard and ranking system a bit more. I think, you know, one thing for me is that an ELO system probably isn't a perfect system for those kind of things, really. And I <clears throat> I wonder if that's why the the kind of investment hasn't been there. Because, you know, <clears throat> ELO for something like chess can make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and guys, sorry, bear with me through this pod with my voice. Sorry, <laughs> I will do my best to get through this. But I think... You know, with this, you know, a game like chess, obviously, versus a game like Flesh and Blood that does have those variance elements, maybe ELO isn't the perfect system, but that's kind of by the by. People can discuss that all they want. But one of the things I would actually really like to see is something that Magic used to do, which is like the basically the the kind of the pro player points, mm-hmm. basically the kind of you know you compete at your your high level events, be it your your national championships, your pro tours, your callings, for instance, and you get points for the season or for the year 
based on your finishes, you know, obviously more points, the higher you finish. And I think that you can reward people off the back of that, you know, with putting people into potentially like pro players club, clubs where next year they get small appearance fees to encourage them to go to even more events. Uh, you can also definitely, you know, reward the player of the year, for instance, the, you know, which isn't necessarily going to be the player who won a PT or won a Worlds. It could just be like, well, they topped two big events or they've like finished in the top 16 consistently. Like, I think it's a really cool way to see like who are the most consistent players, who are the players out there kind of, you know, nose to the grindstone putting in these results. And I, you know, a system like that, I would actually be pretty in favor of seeing, but it's a lot of work. It is a yeah, lot of work. For sure. I actually, you know, kind of piggybacking off that, <clears throat> I don't want to get too much on a tangent, but I feel like in Flesh and Blood, we don't really invest into our pro players, um, at least from the publisher level. Like we don't really try to build their narratives and build their stories. It sort of happens ad hoc at events, you know, with an interview or, you know, this team is bringing this, but- Through content creators. Yeah, exactly. It's through content creators. I think that, you know, LSS could help 10X, like 100X mm. sort of what it means to be a professional player in Flesh and Blood and help to build that community aspect. Because, you know, that word just doesn't really mean anything to me and flesh and blood at the moment and when i think back to yeah. a game like magic they ma they made that feel prestigious right that that was something that you achieved where here it's just like mm -hmm. are you are you not you know it doesn't really matter to be honest so yeah we could i think that i hope that we invest into that in the future because that's that's one of the most powerful thing about i don't know if you call it games or whatever maybe life but the, the storytelling aspect that we can sort of put behind these players to help weave the narratives and you know i think it would you would sort of percolate through the community and generate a lot more excitement excitement as we lead up to these events because right now it's just like you hear about us talk about the, how the wolf pack is a i guess a caravan of 300 players but other than that you know you don't hear much about them no i <laughs> I, I agree. I think there's like the narrative side is something that as something like a pro players club or akin to that from uh, Magic. And if, if you're not familiar with Magic and how they used to run this, then, you know, it's perfectly fine. It's something they used to do back in the day, but it was a really cool thing. You know, it really helps you resonate, I think, even to the point they did things like, you know, pro player cards, for instance, you know, that yeah. first of all, they, I think they came in boosters for a little bit, which <laughs> might be a bit much, but, but then they started to, um, you know, like distribute them in events and players got them to give out to their, you know, to the players and things like that, giveaways and things like that. And I mean, even SCG did that for the SCG tour, right? And even those became household names, people on the, the SCG tour, for instance. So, um, yeah, like it's an interesting concept or something that I think I would love to see for that kind of, I mean, look, there's so many aspects of like wrestling for instance in flesh and blood because of james's kind of aff affinity with wrestling and, and that's a sport that is all about the personalities the people and, and the storylines so um you know i think there's some ways to credit anyway you said tangent we definitely tangented and we <laughs> often we often do tangent on this pod so that's fine but uh those are our weeks in, in flesh and blood let's pop onto the news uh brendan just want to say first of all a massive congratulations to all the nationals winners this weekend um probably the biggest of which or the biggest event over the weekend was the the uk nationals which was fully streamed gonna lead us into i guess we weren't gonna just talk about this but i guess we've we've seen you know people ask us this question so brendan i guess anything to say on the kind of discourse on twitter over the week about triggers pummels uh the rules and people's interpretation of such and honestly just people being not very nice in the community <laughs> yeah i think people would be surprised by my stance on this because um i don't know it's somewhat neutral i just for me my issue with this this situation sort of recurs and happens again and again just throughout the history and you know the maybe first of all just just first of all, like what I, I guess we don't have to talk specifically about the, the players in the event but this has come about by um a, a discussion around mandatory triggers and uh, the ability to miss beneficial triggers as as a player 
and or, or you know missing your opponent's beneficial triggers and not reminding them of their beneficial triggers or not carrying out the the responsibility i guess of what the end result of a mandatory trigger would be for your opponent sorry a beneficial trigger would be for your opponent's side of the table uh basically coming about on stream where uh, in a game a, a player plays a pummel and then uh seemingly misses the the pummel trigger and the opponent decides not to discard that's basically what happens yeah <clears throat> i mean the thing that I don't like about it, and I haven't liked it about it since the beginning, is just like there is this, there's a, unfortunately, I, I would say there is this gray area, but it is actually a concept of a gray area, right? Where the rules are not defined and it's like, is this okay? Is this not? And um, that was my big, that's my biggest complaint. And I, I said that to Hayden, he goes, well, actually, the rules are defined. And that's, that's really kind of where it gets uncomfortable. And I, I wish that things just kind of weren't that way. But if you look at a tier three or a tier four event, um, I would rather go by the rules rather than this sort of gray area where people feel like they, <laughs> I don't know, that they are giving something to their opponent or, you know, they are building up some sort of social equity by letting them have that tuner trigger or not. And then they don't get it back and it feels unfair. Like that whole situation, in my opinion, sucks on both sides of the table. You know, being someone that has I mean, God, I hesitate to say this because it just feels disgusting, but someone who has given someone a tuna trigger that maybe missed it, like, I don't like being in that situation whatsoever. And I don't think that mm. you're a better or worse person for doing it, but it is just the spirit of the game, the context of the game. And I think that if you find that you have an issue with <clears throat> not giving a trigger or not reminding someone, then instead of maybe complaining and, you know, being angry at people on Twitter, set the example yourself, right? Like you are, you have sort of the agency and the responsibility to do that and that i feel like that that's kind of the only line to take here that's the only real line there is to take i think that the way it was handled on social media by both parties <laughs> mind you was incorrect and sort of unprofessional mm. and that that's why it is so sour but ultimately you have to just look to the rules of the event. There was a table judge there. This is just how flesh and blood is played i understand that some people think that it, that was not the spirit of the game but yeah, the correct, the way to sort of handle that situation is to not go yell and scream and for other people to sort of, you know, maybe the champion rub it in your face that they got away with it. Like, none of, that is where the situation gets sour. And it has been mm. like that since the genesis of Flesh and Blood. People have been having this conversation um, of, you know, what is angle shooting? What is not? What is against the rules? What is? And then, you know, obviously the extremes was people calling them cheaters and like, I think that people just need to sort of relax on the emotional end of it. And then, you know, we need to stick to the rules. There, There is comprehensive rules for a reason. And that is really the guiding light. And I think that if you have a problem with that and that you, you think that you wouldn't do that in situation, you telling people that you wouldn't on Twitter is not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to just set the example and to be that player yourself. And I just don't really think there's much of a conversation past that fair i mean i think i think you say it pretty well i i do the only distinction i wanted to make in this situation is that for for people who might be you know sort of saying they might just not, you know potentially not even understand the kind of uh the rulings that surround this so first of all i want to point out that this kind of interaction with um miss beneficial triggers is is not cheating i think that's really clear that i i you know i want to point that out um as a as a level one judge and as a competitive player 
when it comes to then the spirit of the game, uh, well, actually, the next thing I want to say is also, I think, in the situation from having the table judge there and their clarification of the event, uh, also not angle shooting or, or, or sharking as it is by the rules. So, it, you know, it's not against the rules. Um, in terms of the spirit of the game, I mean, that's where this debate comes in, right? And people are free to free to have the spirit of the game debate. I just would, you know, encourage people to, to not make it personal and to try and, like Brendan says, keep it community orientated and, and think about, you know, kind of um, just enacting this as you as you play flesh and blood and as you want to play flesh and blood. And uh, I've been in those situations before, right, mm-hmm. where it's like you just said, you know, uh, I'm going to hold myself to the highest level when it comes to making sure that I play correctly. And you know what? I missed this trigger. I've missed a tunic trigger before. You know what? Damn, missed that tunic trigger there. I, I really need to make sure I'm not missing this trigger in the future. Leads nicely into our pod today. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, then for my opponent later on to then get halfway through the turn and ask me for the tunic trigger, that puts me in a really difficult position because I feel like I'm holding my opponent to the same standards I'm holding myself to, which is the highest of competitive integrity. I'm speaking at, you know, obviously competitive events here. It's a it's a really tough situation. And, you know, this kind of, I do like the kind of change now about, you know, we can flag to judges, miss triggers, and there is ways to resolve triggers a lot cleaner now with kind of uh, a base on game state where we can potentially rewind the game state to 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 fix or you know make partial or complete fixes to to events that have happened in the game um, which is i think it has been a, a good fix overall i think it, it was a bit of teething problems for the first few weeks but it seems like it's been a, a bit of a better fix overall um, but this ongoing debate around yeah this, this especially beneficial triggers when especially when the beneficial triggers require the opponent to do something i think um is going to be an ongoing piece of flesh and blood that is probably the grayest area although again you know within the rules it's not particularly gray but yeah um i, th- I think brennan kind of yeah (laughs) i i think that um yeah when you perceive something as morally virtuous and then you sort of put that onto your opponent as well and uh, sort of expect them to follow some sort of ephemeral set of rules that you have socially constructed to exist that don't and then you look at them as a bad person when they don't do that when they don't give you a tunic trigger when they you know maybe get get away with a pummel like or whatever it's like i think that that person is more in the wrong than the other. It's like ultimately at a professional event, you just follow the rules. Like that's it. And you like, it, it might seem like there's a gray area, but there's not. And you don't want there to be because it, it leads to bad experiences on both sides of the table. Like you don't want to be building up this like weird sort of social credit that isn't actually exists. And then when you give your something, your opponent something and they give you something. And by the way, it, it's all subjective too. It's just like, yeah. you will feel cheated. They will feel cheated. It, it just sucks. It's like, competitive event you just go by the rules and like trust me it's better that way like that is the i think in my opinion the best way to do it uh from every angle is to just go go follow the comprehensive rules because this has been even before there was comprehensive rules people were doing this shit and people were complaining about it like yeah you just got like competitive event follow the rules it's a tough it's a tough one as well because i think you know the way the game is played often these things just naturally happen you Mm -hmm. know so it's like um my opponent plays cnc i choose you know my part of my decision process is oh, if i don't block here i lose my arsenal right so it's like oh, okay i'm not gonna block here and then i'm like okay take six throw the arsenal in the bin right like it's all part of kind of the way you just play the game which is what i understand you know and i completely understand why people maybe feel uh a bit hard done by in that respect right well that's the kind of contention that comes up um you know feel the same feel the same way in terms of i i would that's how i think the game would naturally play but again, I think like Brendan says, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly not really sure what I'll say other than just to point out, I guess that 
I think from our side, we understand mm-hmm. on, on both sides. Um, and I think, you know, just moving forward. Yeah, I think both, the, the honestly, both sides of the argument should be, I, in my opinion, from what I've seen, both sides of the, arg- uh, both sides of the argument here should try to be a bit more community oriented and less toxic. Um, and that, that's, 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 that's my only take here is I think that both sides were being obnoxious and toxic to an extent, not everybody, but that was my takeaway. All right. Well, we can move on. We love the community, Brennan. We want everyone to, you know, enjoy the games of flesh and blood and, um, you know, continue the positivity that we've honestly, this community overall has been mostly entirely positive, yes. which has been like quite a, <laughs> an anomaly to be honest, uh, in, in gaming communities, but honestly, it's, it's amazing. And I think for the majority of the time, it's, um, it's, it's amazing to be a part of this community. So I just want to end, end on a good note there. Uh, I have one question for you, mm-hmm. which is actually something from you said at the start of the pod, which isn't actually relevant to this at all, but people wanted to know is what the heck is Kanoka and how can we play <laughs> Kanoka, Brendan? Honestly, we should probably do a video on it. Um, cause I, it, it is a bit beyond the scope of me sort of, uh, explaining okay. it to you in words in the, in the news section. Um, but I will give you the overall concept is a single, a shared deck, a shared Kano deck where you are basically, you are dealt two cards. Those two, each person is the only unique aspect of the game is that you are dealt two cards. And those two cards represent the top of the deck, a talismanic lens for sense, uh, in a sense. Other than that, everybody has the same equipment. Everybody has a Ragamuffin's hat, a Tunic on three, Stormstriders, Metacarpus node, Crucible, Kano, of course. Um, and then you simply go, you flip the, you're going to flip four cards like you would in a river. Uh, you know, you get dealt, sorry, you get dealt another card, which is your arsenal. That is also unique. But then you deal four cards in a river and people sort of incrementally bet how much damage they think they could do. Those four cards represent the cards in hand, right? So you have the op, the two cards that you know are on the top of the deck. You are dealt an arsenal and then information is revealed on what cards are in the hand and you incrementally bet and basically mm-hmm. the person who is bet the most um, has to display it and if people tie they will sort of the deck is uh, can be reconstructed totally fine so they can show it as well so you know one person defer to the other but yeah if you if you don't do the amount of damage that you have bet uh, you lose and everybody else gets your money and the way that we play it so it's fun is we play five second turns <laughs> so you can't think about it you got to know the heuristic, no. the heuristic math and you have two minutes to resolve the combo because some people will sit there and they'll say 45 and then they'll you know waste everybody's time for 10 minutes while i try to figure out a 45 damage combo which doesn't exist <laughs> so two minutes as well and if you violate as well everybody else gets your, get your money that's kanoka we could go to a more detailed explanation of it the, the deck that we used is the deck that will be on the kano deck deck um Oh, that sounds scary for Kanoka. Yeah, with the not that, yeah, but not the attack actions. It's just the start okay. tidings are the, the sixty. <laughs> but there is an eye of Aphidia, so there is a, effectively a Joker in the deck. You know, you can hit that at the top, and you're out. Uh, not in a good way. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes, we had some questions about what the heck is Kanoka. So there you go. But maybe uh, a video to come sometime soon. Maybe we can just do a video of me and you playing some Kanoka. Probably Although, Worlds. It might be hard. Right. We'll probably do it yeah, at Worlds. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. We'll get some. We'll get some players together. We'll play Kanoka at Worlds because Brendan will obviously have his Kanoka. Yeah. Them. What? Uh, um, all right, moving on the news, uh, just quickly wrapping up. Battle Harden Columbus happened this past weekend along with all the nationals. Uh, congratulations to Brody again winning another Battle Harden on Lexi. Lexi, just from a Living Legend update standpoint, uh, Lexi and Icelander look like neither will Living Legend during this national season. Mm-hmm. But post Bright Lights into the ProQuest season, it looks like both could be in positions to potentially Living Legend out pretty pretty quickly or th- in, in that ProQuest season at mm-hmm. least. So it looks like for the kind of start of that Bright Lights season, we will have a pretty similar meta with Bright Lights. Obviously, Sans Briar, who's already hit Living Legend. But then as we move on, uh, you know, towards Worlds, um, we could very well see a season 
that includes bright lights of course but now without icelander and lexi they're both hovering it looks like they're going to finish both around the kind of like 800 to 920 mark on ll points yeah yeah it was just funny because i will maintain my point of view that i think that the most impactful change to flesh and blood class constructed has come through the living legend system despite it being a somewhat ad hoc and imperfect system um it it yeah. at, Living Legend is what actually sort of leads to real change in the game and interesting disruption, right? Because if Lexi and Isolator go out, you know, somewhat simultaneously, the game will change drastically. Mm -hmm. Yep, I, I fully agree. We've seen the biggest impacts from Living Legend. I think that is very, very true. Uh, Roundtable, we talked about this last week on the pod. It kind of dropped just as we were doing the pod last week. This is releasing Friday, September 29th. If you haven't seen this already, this is the collaboration with uh, the professor from... Tellerian Community College. Community College. Did you almost say Tellerian <laughs> Dropouts, like, like old Rob Sago? No, 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 no. <laughs> I almost say uh, Academy, like Tellerian Academy, right? Because of the card, but uh -huh. um, uh, being a Magic player. But uh, <laughs> so I'm always like careful of that. Uh, but yes, I mean, I've taken a, a, a more in-depth look, I would say, at the cards. Uh, I'm, I'm actually excited for this product from almost purely a casual standpoint mm -hmm. and a way to potentially bring some of my friends who have like kind of been umming and ahhing about flesh and blood from a casual standpoint to play the game you know who aren't particularly competitive players but are interested in trying the game and uh, i think this is going to be a product that i'm going to pick up and bring to them you know the we talked about this last week the the jewel decks what wasn't it the versus uh was was it not? uh classic but, battles yeah sorry yeah it's <laughs> yep. all good it's all good how, yeah how well that sticks in my mind it's the it's the brain fog right now i, I would say well. repress the memory to be honest <clears throat> shh, shh, shh. <laughs> uh so no i i've had a look i obviously there are some cards for class constructed i think in here uh there's some cards for blitz definitely i also think that uh my theory running theory still is that the mechanologist cards are going to be in bright lights uh, and also some of these cards also in bright lights and other facets as well potentially so that that's my theory at least anyway mm -hmm. we'll see We'll see. That would definitely be a good guy move by LSS. That would be respecting their player base, in my opinion. If yeah. they do that, that yeah. would be very, yes, that would be very nice. Because the introductory casual kitchen table product serves its audience, but the competitive player base. And the, so if, if those cards are not reprinted, it will likely hurt both player bases because it will, you know, increase the demand to where the supply cannot fulfill it or it will increase the price as a re as a result of increasing the demand and the supply yeah. staying fixed which is bad for all parties so hopefully you're correct economics at brennan patrick yeah. on the arsenal pass podcast <laughs> uh so yeah i'm excited for this product actually yeah looking forward to it so friday september 29th can't wait for our product to come out right yeah yeah that's coming, that's coming. <laughs> it's <laughs> surely <laughs> uh all right one more week of nationals bright lights just around the corner uh, i reckon we get a juicy preview brennan i hope so nah not with the way not with mm, nah maybe you so if they did two again you know i'll get the turd and you get the you get the golden nugget what was yours again chains of you don't even know what card. like that's the thing is the card doesn't even exist chains of my fetus <laughs> uh, uh it exists it exists uh all right let's move on come on cookout time brendan we've got a question from a calling champion on the pod this week um from actually for, submitted to our discord from row two we asked for some questions the other week and i think it's a great question and this kind of ties in a little bit with what we've seen with round table i think around the table sorry how would you try to improve the onboarding process for new players do you think there's a place for an official budget constructive format brian gottlieb and others have cited the experience of new players going winless after a few armories due to fab being a lower variance game and this issue is often 
exacerbated in constructed formats. Jumping straight into Blitz and CC against players with fully powered decks can be disheartening for new players who haven't picked up their first legendaries yet. While we've seen Alice's put effort into creating commoner and Blitz precons, these formats are limited in their scope and can lack appeal replayability for experienced players. Casual formats like UPF and PvE are seeing more support, but they appeal to multiplayer experience that seems separate to 1v1 constructed gameplay. Could LSS implementing something like the Clash format be a possible solution for players to jump into constructive fab with less financial commitment? I've enjoyed the gameplay of commons plus rares alongside specializations, and I think with a tuned ban list, it would be a more friendly way for new players to play their upgraded precon or deck built from a booster box or two. Okay, so my first question would be, so if they did come out with this format, they did support it, would it be a format that was played at callings or battle hardens or, you know, competitive events? And that's a, that's a range of events. Because um, mm-hmm. one thing that I'll say, at least from anecdotally from personal experience, is that my locals, they tend to play formats that are going to be featured in upcoming tournaments. So if there is a class constructed tournament coming up, they play class constructed every week. They don't do the really, they don't really do the rotation because flesh and blood players tend to get, you know, burnt out of a draft set or something like that after a while, because you know, it can be three plus months. So they will tend to play formats that are relevant to upcoming tournaments. And I think that if, you know, flesh and blood was like, okay, we are going to officially support clash. It's in your local armory. You know, maybe it had a launch weekend, I just think that if it was never featured again in like a battle hardened tournament or a or a calling or something, you know, a lot of locals would drop or a lot of local stores would drop it because people wouldn't be interested in really practicing it. You know, maybe they would play it kitchen table, but um, ultimately, I think the support has to sort of, you know, foster and grow at the local game store level um, for the format to even kind of effectively exist, right? To to really exist because clashes, you can play clash right now. It's just not a real format, right? Um, would it be good for the game and would it be a better onboarding? Well, when I talk to people about Flesh and Blood who have never played it, the biggest critique initially is the price of constructed decks. While I think that that is, you know, artificially inflated and that a lot of these players wouldn't need specific cards that are driving the price of those decks up in order to compete, especially at the army level, it's a huge barrier of entry because people see the, you know, the thousand dollar decks and they think that that is the, they need to spend a thousand dollars to engage with the game at level one, which is absolutely not correct. It's a fallacy, but you know, ca- card game players, whether they are actual competitive players or actual casual players, they tend to, they trend towards wanting to play the best decks they want to win. You know, of course, there are players like the brew and stuff, but oddly in card games, other than, you know, more than other games, people tend to optimize, optimize a bit more. Um, so it seems so. Um, I, t- Hayden, I'm going to pass over to you because I don't have an answer to the <laughs> core question. I just have answers to like some of the supporting questions. <laughs> so I will pass. So I'm glad, I feel like we've tagged him here because I didn't really have an answer about Clash because to me, like, um, I have the same problem that you do is like players want to, like as a gateway, right? Like uh, Rotu specifically asked about onboarding, right? And I I don't know if a format that has no clear pathway right now, and not to say it couldn't in the future, but it's not a supported format currently, doesn't have a clear pathway, right? So I kind of agree with you. If this is a format that's just being played at the kitchen table, then that kind of has the same problems as the PvE aspect that that is discussed in this question, right? Which Which is fine. Like it's not, that's not the be all and end all, but I'm just not sure that that's going to solve the onboarding issue, especially bringing people into the Blitz and Classic Constructed format and even the limited format. So I have a thought, but first of all, I have a question for you, Brendan, which Mm -hmm. is what was the easiest format we've had so far to bring someone into the game for? Sealed. Sealed? To bring someone into the game? Yes. I, okay, meta. Maybe let me say meta rather than format. I may have thrown you off with format. (laughs) Okay, 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 okay. Um, The easiest meta probably... 
Uh, the Phi Meta Uprising. Interesting. I was going to say Stavo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You win. You win. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. You win. I, I, I think... So, there's obviously a lot of people had a lot of problem with Stavo as a, as a hero and, and with that meta in general. I think Stavo, and I'll go back to this, I've said this so many times, I was, you know, the villain on this pod enough times talking about how much I thought Stavo was good for the game. And I will just say it one more time. Uh, I mean, that's probably won't be the last time I say it. But I think the ability for people, like new players, to pick up the deck, honestly, the, 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 the cost barrier for that deck at a very basic level wasn't that bad either. It was literally a bunch of draft commons. Um, yes, some of the cards, yeah, I, I do agree. There's the cost barrier, something we can talk about in a second, but I think actually cost barrier wise, Starbo was one of the least prohibitive decks. Um, when you look at the kind of spread of, of legendaries, you could even play that deck without Tunic. But I think that bringing people into the game, it was like very straightforward to understand. You draw your pieces, you put them on the table, you play your big attacks and you go bonk, right? Like as much as you want to say, you know, this is nuance to Starbo and playing the prison matchup was very difficult. I completely agree. But the base level of what that deck could do and the power level at a very uh, approachable level, I think was good for the game. And I would like to honestly, I think the fix is to make the ability for decks like this to exist mm. in some way, shape or form, whether it be in class constructed, whether it be in blitz. My other piece to add on to that for a financial standpoint would be a card like Hard and Cross Trap, currently banned in blitz i think is the perfect piece of equipment for blitz now the problem is obviously just that the pure power level of that card versus other cards but i want to see a, maybe you know a, not uh not to be unbanned but particularly maybe a card of a similar ilk printed for blitz that allows players to come into play blitz at a fairly um cost friendly level reminiscent i'm going to go back to magic here again, a bit of playing something in magic like mono red for instance right where it's yeah. like here you go here's the here's the deck that just goes you just play your cards you just deal them damage to the face and then the game ends whether you you win or you lose and and i think that is a bit more friendly to the entry level um particularly armory level so those are the kind of things i think this kind of aspect or this essence of what starvo was was particularly good in that in that range and then also this ability to maybe from a cost standpoint print some more friendly equipment which to be fair they they have done a little bit um but i think there's there's more work that could be done there especially when it comes to the blitz format in particular but those those are the, the kind of solutions i have mm. devil's advocate so i somewhat partially a bit agree with you about <laughs> starvo but i will say that i think that flesh and blood is a niche game i think that it has a target audience and that target audience loves yeah the aspect of flesh and blood that makes flesh and blood flesh and blood if flesh and blood transitioned into a game that was either dominated or had the prevalence of many decks like starvo existing at the top end of competitive play i don't know if i would like flesh and blood anymore yes i agree so no, that, I, that, I that is the that is the paradigm right <laughs> You've got, and it's a balancing act, right? But also, I would say you don't need a lot of decks like that to exist. Mm -hmm. You just need one. And I think, you know, I think Starvo could be that to a degree, for instance, what we saw. But also, there's ways to potentially balance that a little bit more. That, that format in particular was really high powered, right? So there's obviously a balancing act to be done there. But mm -hmm. yeah, I, so, I, I look, I'm not a game designer, don't have all the answers, but I just think from an onboarding standpoint, making it a bit easier for new players to, to win some games early, find it a bit more approachable and get into the game, I think there has to be. And, and something that Brian talked about when he came on the pod a few weeks ago, right? Like increasing the power level of, of Heroes of the Variants. Like maybe that's a way to do it, right? Like here you go, here's your deck. Uh, yes, this deck isn't super consistent, but it does some ridiculously powerful stuff. 
go forth and you'll just win some games off variance. That that is a great, you know, that I'm not saying it's great, but that's a potentially a good way mm-hmm. to to start out for new players. Yeah, it's um it's very high risk, high reward from the game design standpoint. I think that they can try to loop in newer players and casual players with that sort of game design. But if they, you know, they do that, they go forward with that, and they don't sort of catch the casual player base, the new players that they're looking for, but they do introduce that to the game. They do threaten sort of the lifeblood of what is flesh and blood. And I think the players that sort of support the game, the game is propped up by the competitive scene, in my opinion, at this point. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of flesh and blood games going on around the world that I don't know about, but it does seem like flesh and blood is a very competitive oriented game. So they, I, I think that they're they have the right philosophy, they're going in the right direction, but I do think it is very risky because it's a balancing act. I mean, when, when Starville came out, I was, when it was, you know, when it was a thing, I was like, wow, this is really dog shit hero design. <laughs> like, I thought that it was really bad hero design because you were winning the game in deck building and not in gameplay to an extent. Obviously, nuance, you know, mirrors are, mirrors are hard, prison matchup is hard. Yeah, yeah. But, but as a competitive player, I uh, definitely did not enjoy the, <laughs> the, that deck at the time. <laughs> Yeah, it's a tough one. I think the the difference, though, like one thing I'll say is I completely agree with you about that kind of, you know, that competitive orientation and, and where the game currently sits. And I don't think that's necessarily 100%, the, you know, the future for Flesh and Blood. Mm-hmm. And I think obviously products like Round the Table are, are showing that in the PvE kind of aspect and multiplayer, etc. But also you need to bring in new competitive players. <laughs> and like, you know, a lot of these, a lot of who will be competitive players are players who start at the armory level and like find, you know, like they, they win a game at their first armory, for instance, and that kind of gets the needle in the arm, for instance. You know, it's like if this potential competitive player comes to three armories in a row, 03, 03, 03, what's the likelihood they show up to that fourth? Like it's diminishing, right? Over each armory, honestly, like it, it is just going to be. So, yeah, I think there's a responsibility to find a balancing act there. There's no no right answer. But anyway, great question. Uh, interested to hear anyone's thoughts in the comments. Let us know what you think players could do what do you think about things like uh the clash format what do you think about things like potentially introducing the power level of or at least the the linearity of a hero like starbo into the format again uh yeah, i'd love to hear your thoughts so, on what we just talked about you know i actually think i've uh, i have an idea for the future success of uh, flesh and blood the lifeblood per se i think that we could do you know thousand dollar buy-in tournament sanctioned kanoker <laughs> there you go he's nailed it <laughs> I'm not very good at Kanoka, to be fair, so I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, main topic of the pod time, Brendan. Oh, quickly, if you do want to get your questions in for the Commander Cookout, you can do so uh, either emailing us, arsenalpassfab.gmail.com. You can drop them in the YouTube comments below if you are on the YouTube version of this pod. You can uh, tweet at us either to the official Arsenal Pass Twitter or to either myself and Brendan, or you can even, if you're on the Arsenal Pass Patreon Discord, you can drop them in the channel there, which is what uh, Rotu did for this question. Anyway, Brendan, main topic time. Why aren't you winning your events? Mm. This is the question. Now, this sounds a, it's a little bit simplified, the title of this pod, why you aren't winning events. But honestly, I think we've got five things here that kind of boil down to the difference between people who are consistently winning events and people who, myself included, you know, making top 16s, top 4s, top 8s, be that at your armory level, your pro quest level, your nationals level, all the way up to your pro tour worlds level. Uh, because these all five things we're going to talk about, they're all sliding scales really they're all kind of things that almost every single player does to a degree and i think you're going to find yourself somewhere along this kind of spectrum and it's about just improving little improvements i think to get yourself further along with basically not doing these things uh so that you can you can win more events i honestly just think that's kind of what it boils down to brendan mm-hmm. and point number one is one that definitely resonates with me which is you brought the wrong 
deck or he didn't bring the right deck. So, yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say? No, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, I think that metagaming and obviously this is a slight this is a very much a sliding scale but metagaming understanding the meta like what can show up what is currently performing uh you know in recent events and what you can likely extrapolate and project to show up at your your event you know we're in national season right now which is interesting because they're competitive events but they are somewhat demographic based right like there are regions that have high representations of certain heroes rather than others um etc so you really need to understand you know, your specific area or just, you know, sort of blow that out to something like a world championship. Like what, what are the current conditions uh, going on in the meta that can help predict what decks will show up, you know, recognizing what is the best deck, what is the deck to beat? And all of those questions can really help you optimize your testing as well, right? For instance, in, in today's meta, if you were brewing up a new deck, you you know, you wanted to maybe play Kano or something like that, and uh, your deck couldn't beat Lexi, I mean, you should literally just stop there. You can optimize to try to beat Lexi, but if you never get past point one, don't go to step two, three, four, five, you know, don't optimize your Jermai matchup, etc., unless you are willing to take an auto loss to the most or, you know, whatever your loss ratio is to the, the best deck in the room, which would probably fall under our description of, yeah, maybe you brought the wrong deck to the tournament. Yeah, and I want to point this out. This isn't a slight saying, you know, you, you can't play your, your pet deck or, or whatever it is. But I think what this really is, is like picking the best deck for you to succeed. And at times, this is going to be the best deck in the meta. At times, this is going to be the deck that you are most familiar with. At times, this is going to be a deck that is neither of those two things. Um, and also, it's going to be dependent on the, the time and investment you have to potentially learn this hero. But <clears throat> I think one of the things like time and time again that I see people make the mistake of is they go, okay, I will play this hero. This is the hero that I want to play, which is fine. And then they don't think about the things Brennan just said in terms of the metagame or making sure they understand how to beat their best matchup uh oh they're sorry beat the most prevalent matchup for instance or just honestly just being like okay i played this deck last time and it's the deck i know so i'll play it without kind of bringing in the aspects of this new and current meta and i think that is kind of the the, the downfall for a lot of people i think you know when it comes to playing the best deck like this isn't going to be the the correct decision for everyone mm -hmm. right like there's times where icelander for instance has been the best deck would i go out there and say you know you should go and play icelander at event probably not right like if you don't have the time to put the reps in and, and learn it it might not be the best option for you instead the best option for you might be the best aggressive deck in the format that you have some reps on for instance you know it could be fire in that meta for instance even if it's slight dog to a slight dog to Icelander in that meta it's like well that's fine but you also still have a pretty good matchup spread with fire mm -hmm. so it's it's really contextual I just think my my biggest advice I want to give to, to players when it comes to deck selection for events if you're trying to get that one step further and you're trying to make sure that you, you're you know consistently able to you know punch your ticket to the the pro tour for instance or you're able to make day two of the calling for instance is to be more partial about how you look at selecting a deck take a step back and say okay what what is happening in the meta right now as Brendan says what is option like viable options for me and if it's one of these is you know uh my pet deck for instance do i have the ability to to, to or the, the hero that i main do i have the ability to derive the plans that are going to get me success and let's take a step back like let's get some advice from my friends and stuff you know am i just kind of coping a little bit and saying i've got a 40 percent matchup into lexi here is it really like a 10 percent matchup you know it's really like you're gonna have to get very lucky to win or have you actually got a really well fleshed out strategy here that either might catch some people off guard or is actually just can consistently get you some wins i, I think that's something important to think about 
Yeah, rationalizing uh, your attack. So sometimes, sometimes it's it's just important. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there, Brendan. Yeah, it's important <laughs> to just you know you can look at it objectively first, and then you can decide to ignore the objective truth and choose whatever deck sure. you want. But when you lose, you should know that you made a suboptimal choice, which is part of the fun of have fun of card games. You know, sometimes all the fun isn't mm-hmm. isn't isn't in winning, believe it or not. Um, but you need, you need to take that objective look at the metagame, at what deck you're, you're potentially going to pick, and the sort of expected matchups that you will face and you look at that critically um and from there i mean that should really be the guiding light on your choice i mean i think that honestly looking at the metagame is one of the most important things uh before picking a deck i mean some people you know they like to auto default to the deck that they have the most reps on or the deck they're most comfortable with and that could be the right choice but mm-hmm. correctly predicting a metagame will win you so many more games, I think, than you know having an extra 10, 20, 30 matchups on some decks. Like if you get the metagame correct, yeah. you can blow the top off a tournament. Yeah, with with a, a range of probably hero options, to be honest, because you can you can tweak and tick, right? Like <clears throat> I think one of my personal, I think, like strengths has been in this game is like we've mostly nailed metagames, I think, when it's come to deciding. And it's helped us a lot with deck selection. Like, I think my, I think when I went to Worlds, Kano was not the best choice, right? Like, and I took Kano to Worlds. But I think that when I took a step back and tried to evaluate it semi rationally, to be honest, I locked into Kano pretty early and was mm-hmm. like, I'm just going to grind this deck a little bit because I think people are still underprepared. So I definitely rationalized it to a degree. But I think I did take a step back, especially in the last couple of weeks, and was like, okay, I've played enough Icelander here. I could play Icelander. My concern with playing Icelander is that I didn't feel prepared enough for the mirrors, particularly. Uh, I didn't particularly want to play mirrors. I didn't enjoy them. So there's the enjoyability factor that Brennan just talked about. Uh, and and I was worried about people like actually taking for Icelander because I thought it was the best deck in the format. So like honestly, I kind of decided to not play Icelander for that reason. I, I honestly, I think it wasn't the right reasoning and it was some rationalizing. Like I've definitely been, you know, fallen afoul of this before, like, like Four Worlds, for instance. Um, but, you know, I definitely went through that process, I think. And I, I, I just encourage people if they're looking to make sure that they're bringing the right deck to events is to to be a bit more impartial about their deck selection. And uh, if you, honestly, if you want to win more events, like just bringing the right deck is going to get you some percentage and for a lot of people significantly higher percentages of of wins you there's some decks out there where you don't even necessarily need to uh grind them out for instance like a few games of like dedicated testing to understand the deck list uh could be more than enough than you need to be for that deck to be a much better pick than what you're already considering all right point number two is and this is probably this is the point that gets over applied. People like to default to this point is why they lose, but it's you lost before you sat down. Um, and that could be picking the wrong deck. That could be playing against someone that is, you know, objectively just much, much better than you, getting paired into the wrong person, et cetera. And, you know, getting your, your, one unlosable matchup that represents 0.5% of the metagame. Sometimes that will happen, right? Sometimes that will happen. Sometimes your draft will get, will get destroyed. And please don't be one of those people that blames other people in their pod for drafts. You <laughs> are all cringe who do that. Don't do that. Um, but it happens, right? Um, it's a possibility. And I think you need to appreciate that variance aspect of card games. It's part of the reason why you play this card game is because it is not chess and that will happen. Um, that being said, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I wouldn't attribute too much to this and there's not much you can do to sort of, um, avoid it, but 
I think it's important for sort of your mental game and, you mm-hmm. know, just playing, you know, kind of continuing your career, as you would say, or your sort of your, your length of play as a professional player. Because when it comes down to it, a lot of it is just numbers. Like it, you, it's very unlikely that you will just sort of spike your first event win and your first event is going to be sort of the highlight of your career. No, it's likely that you will go through a period of time, maybe not receiving optimal results. But eventually, if you play enough and you keep practicing, you will get your break. There's a concept that when you, you know, if you put sit two players down, you put two decks in front of each other, the game, if played 100% optimally, is actually predetermined. There is no skill aspect. There is only the, the deviation of misplays and the lack of skill that sort of derives you away from this already predetermined result. So while that is not going to be the case for actually probably 100% of you, mm-hmm. we're at the limit of 99.99%, it is something to consider that sometimes you will just lose. Like, that's why you play flesh and blood, actually. That's why you play this game. It's because it has, if not a massive amount, a bit of variance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, I think that you make some good points there. And, and the thing is, is you need a bit of luck. Well, a bit of variance to go your way to to win events. Like people will outperform their their quote unquote skill level right uh with a bit of variance and and people will underperform right in events uh even with correct you know deck selection and, and things like this right that that is going to happen i mean we can look at the highest level right like michael hamilton is if not the best player in the world like one of the best players right and the the like the wins he's gotten he's also had to have some variance go his way you know or some things go his way in games to, to get there like it's always going to be the, the way and that's going to happen at any level but I think this kind of idea of you lost before you sat down is honestly like a mental piece. And that is that I think this kind of boils down to like you were saying, Brennan, kind of the, the, the mentality of the game. And one of these things, right, is like, you know, uh, I can give an example. Last last weekend or two weekends ago at Nationals, right? I ended day two, end, sorry, end of day one. I'm sitting there, I'm at, I'm at uh, seven and, and two or whatever it is, looking at the bracket for the three rounds I constructed on day two, looking at my bracket. And I just looked down the page and it's like, Icelander, uh, sorry, sorry dash uh draw my mirrors icelander and then i'm like scrolling down and there's one fire player there's one fire player i'm like okay this is my bad matchup right like i just need to dodge this matchup tomorrow on round one and and we're good to go team we're good to go right obviously i peer into the fire round one you know but my mentality in that situation is like okay well i know what i need to do in this game it is probably if not my you know worst matchup one of my worst matchups but the mentality is like I'm still going to win this game, you know, I'm still going to take this game at a time and do everything I can to win this game and not have lost the game before I sat down, which I just think is, it is a mental barrier. And I think this happens with, um, you know, uh, players and maybe they, they sit down across a big, uh, across from a big name, for instance, or a player that they really respect, or they have this kind of, this voodoo of being not able to beat. I, honestly, I think I've played like six games of competitive, like sanctioned flesh and blood against Matt Rogers. I've won the first game we ever played, which was the calling final. And then I've not beaten this guy since. And I think when I sit down, I'm like mentally, like slightly, you know, I've been like, I'm trying to make sure I'm not slightly defeated before I sit down. And I think everyone has those players, right? You have your player that whenever Brendan sits down across from me, he just knows that he's going to lose. <laughs> but, you know, he tries to <laughs> he tries to shake that mindset. Oh, actually, have, that happens to me with Sasha Markovic, actually. Oh, no. Because I, the opposite for I, I sort of learned card games with him. So there's like, and he's also a really weird person. So when he, when you play with him casually, it's like, he's one person. When you play with him competitively, he's like literally like Different person. unrecognizable. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just like can't 
beat him in a lot of like competitive games where there's actually stakes. For instance, we were playing um, a vintage cube in the UK when we were back there for Marvel Snap from his friend brought it. And I had lethal on board and then, um, you know, Sasha made an illegal play and Angle shot me for the win. In, we, were in the, we were in the lobby. Like, I don't even know why. And I didn't recognize it. Yeah. I don't think he recognized uh, it either. But I was just like, I actually woke up at 2 a.m. and I texted him. I was like, you, you bastard. Like, you actually just cheated me. You remembered? Yes. Yeah. Did he cheat or was it Angle shooting? Uh, like no, cheating he cheated. He cheated. He cheated. <laughs> Uh, but no, I, I just think, you know, all these kind of points are, is losing before you sit down, like the gym pairings, you know, like feeling it, your gym paired, uh, your draft goes awry. Like Brent, like Brendan said, you know, like, uh, I, I got cut in pack two, my, you know, this person switched and, uh, you know, I feel like my draft just went downhill. Who cares about that? Like that's out of your control, right? You control every element you can within your control and that's all you can focus on. And that's how you make sure that you kind of, if not avoid it, because maybe avoiding this is hard. Like we said, you know, even it gets to the, you know, I'm going to say the best of us. It gets to us. We're not the best of anyone, but you know, <laughs> it gets to everyone. Right. And I think it's just about mitigating how much you kind of get into this mentality of, of lose before you sit down uh, as much as possible. You know, play, you draft went badly. No worries. Three rounds of draft. Just take it game by game. Mm-hmm. All right. Point number three, you aren't as prepared for your opponent. Uh, you aren't as prepared as your opponent for the game you're about to play. I mean, I think that flesh and blood is a very high uh, skill. It's very, very much a skill-based game and practice definitely does make perfect and at that you know perfect perfect practice makes perfect so people that have optimized sort of their testing routines have put in you know a bit more concentrated effort in preparing for this tournament preparing for these matchups you will sometimes sit across from people that are just more prepared for you they're more ready for the matchup maybe they've brought cards mm-hmm. that you haven't sort of predicted yet you know there's a tech card in their deck you're playing the best deck they've brought some sort of card that you haven't anticipated it blows you out um and that's just i mean that's a part of the game obviously this is a part of the game that you have massive agency over right and a lot of this happens prior to the tournament um actually all of it um and you're <laughs> yeah preparing for tournaments appropriately is is actually key to performing them i know that sounds obvious but um you'd be surprised at how many people that lose at tournaments and never look back at their testing process how hard they tried yep. etc and yeah i think in flesh and blood you definitely you will reap the rewards of your input to an extent like your output should be sort of reminiscent of the amount of work and effort that you put into it the players you surround her with the the decks you picked etc and that preparation comes before the tournament yeah i just i was laughing because I, I accidentally made a bit of a typo on the question and yeah. i was just like listen to brendan like, i'm ron burgundy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh very professional brendan on the on the fly getting that done there um look no i mean you know this kind of not being as prepared as the person sitting down across from you a lot of the time that is going to mean that they have a significant advantage in the game even if it is a, a good a good matchup for you for instance because yes it's a good matchup for you but have they come prepared to make sure that they can try and skew that in their favor yeah almost certainly and if they've done it better than you have or at least you know maybe you haven't done it at all kind of prepared for what what they could do it can put you in some some tough situations so um this kind of idea of preparing, like i really subscribe to the philosophy of like work smarter not harder when it comes to preparation for events like i don't play hundreds and thousands of games on the deck i'm going to play um for even for instance like this last this past nationals i i honestly think the total number of drama games i played was i think sub 50 i don't think i played more than 50 drama games before before my nationals but 
I made sure that all the games I played had, had as much impact as possible. So the games I played were against matchups I really cared about testing into. Every game I played, I played with uh, against someone who, you know, I felt was like the, you know, the level player equal or around me that I wanted to test with. I made sure that we were like playing with lists that were relevant, you know. So if I, I wasn't playing to someone playing like, I don't know, uh, Decimator X Dory, for instance, unless I actually cared about that matchup, which... I didn't. Sorry, <laughs> some people who like Dismatic story, but you know th these are kind of things like work smarter, not harder, when it comes to to being prepared, and um, also taking a step back and trying to understand what have we been you know, like this kind of uh, do your homework. I like to say, you know, Brendan, do a bit of research. What lists have been coming out recently? What are people playing? You know, if you're preparing for the Lexi matchup, for instance, what do the Lexi lists look like right now? There's no point in taking a Lexi list from Proto Baltimore. They look so different right now. You know, how many ice cards are they running? What arrows are they running? So you don't get surprised when your opponent just goes like red sedation shot or red withering shot. You're like, what? People don't play this card in, in, mm -hmm. in Lexi. Well, actually, they have been playing in Lexi more recently, but you haven't been doing your homework and keeping up with it. So, you know, your opponent being more prepared for you when you sit down across from the table is often why you're not going to win events. And I think people can, again, work smarter, not harder and um, and do the right things. Don't need to spend more time necessarily just spending the time on the right things to, to be as prepared as possible for events. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be perfect or you don't even have to be great. You just have to be better than the other the person across from you hey outwork <laughs> outwork the guy beside you right yeah, that's exactly. the uh that's the other thing <laughs> one thing i do want to say because i know brennan you're a big subscriber to this philosophy and so am i is um the kind of the the mental and physical preparedness in the lead up to an event especially in the, like the kind of a couple of days before which is like you know making sure that you, you you get a good night's sleep making sure that as much as possible i know it's hard especially when like nerves are there maybe it's before you know nationals or even the day before a pro quest if it's a, if a big pro quest for you right like getting battle hard and whatever it is like getting in that that sleep getting in a, a good meal making sure you've got water and some snacks with you like these are the things that i like to make sure are also ticked off my list to make sure i'm not like at an event i know we've took us a lot but like where's my next meal coming from yep. for instance i want to make sure i've got that ticked off because that's just being prepared which i, I quite like yeah, eliminating all those sort of external things that you might need to think about and just focusing sideboard on Sideboard notes. Yep, sideboard yeah, notes. Yeah, like sideboard notes. They come with them printed yep. out. It's like there's no reason for you to be actually devoting any, any neurons to thinking about those things during, the, uh, during yep. the tournament. All right, next point, compounding mistakes and tilt factor. This is actually something that I, I actually personally don't suffer from it too much in tournaments, but I know for some people – it's, it can be pretty bad, right? You know, this, I mean, th this, so this theoretically, this actually, I mean, this concept, it doesn't actually exist in reality. It's just self, self, uh, self-inflicted, right? Fulfilling. Yeah. This, yeah. this idea that, you know, once you've lost, you've sort of, you've, you have this now, you have this mental burden that's going to continue to weigh on you and make you sort of ha make more mistakes, lose more games, et cetera, going on mm -hmm. tilt. And I mean, I think the best way to manage this is, and I've said it many, many times this podcast, is to take it game by game, right? You know, whether you're 7-0 or you're 0-2, et cetera, it's like you need to take it game by game because the tournament is not round one. You know, losing round one doesn't mean you lose a tournament, even losing round two. It's the tournament is not over and you need- Shut up, Pablo Pinto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's obviously players that have, have taken this to great lengths and you won pro tours after, after 0-2 starts, but taking mm -hmm. it game by game and trying to sort of re set after every game whether win or loss while the losses can be a bit more destructive for some people win or loss reset and take the game for what it is which is just that individual match that you're now sitting down for 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so there's like, I think there's two aspects of this one when it comes to this compounding mistakes and tilt factor. There's match to match, like you just talked about, right? You know, last game lost, put it behind you, move on. There's also within a game as well. <clears throat> there's actually this three. idea of, you know, well, okay, yeah, sure, sure. The second part, okay, I will go is, is within a game, right? It's like you, you make a mistake on one turn and all of a sudden all you can think about is that mistake and, you know, you just make another mistake because you've, you've had loss of attention or you've just mentally given up the game. Oh, I made this mistake. My opponent's better than me. Uh, you know, this mistake was so big. It's so out of character for me that now I'm just, you know, mentally not there. Th- those are the things that are like, honestly, the more you can avoid that, just the better you're going to do. And also just, I think this even extends to, kind of like pinning it to like variants and stuff like this you know a lot of people go get unlucky for instance right it's, it's like it's wow just my, just not my, my opponent drew the last popper in their deck yeah and you know like the third side I, they saw three poppers in the first three hands for instance like how unlucky am i and then tilt make a mistake lose the game etc yeah what's the third one Brendan? oh so the third one is over months even years actually the uh, one, it's, yeah, it's okay. the one i see verbalized the most actually whether yeah, it's on yeah. twitter or people come up to me i'm so like, unlucky no it's not even i'm so unlucky it's like players okay. are too good they definitely say that don't get me wrong like players are too good now i can't keep up anymore don't have as much time like all this this like random shit that doesn't actually really matter to preparing for a new event and preparing for a new match, right? A singular match. But people will take losses or sort of groups of losses and now lump them into like a sort of a, oh, I don't know, they sort of digest that into a sense of abject failure, right? Like they failed completely because those losses have come, you know, in succession of each other, right? And they go on tilt and thinking that they can no longer compete, you know, people are not better than them, they they just are, they are meant to be unlucky, et cetera. And I think that, you know, I've actually seen a lot of people leave the game, quit the game because of that. They, you know, it's, it, it's just weird because it, there's, I think that there's some personalities and some, some mental games, you know, of people that would lose, they could lose, they could win a game, lose a game for eternity. But if they win 10 in a row and then they end up losing five in a row, they're out and <laughs> they're done. <laughs> and look, and don't get me wrong. I mean, this kind of mental fortitude and, and, uh it's tough and also like it might not be for everyone in terms of the way that you know the way that you structure your kind of thinking and like you just talked about 10 wins in a row five losses in a row like those a loss to you might be just more detrimental disproportionately to a win right and and you know that is that is tough to deal with i would say that i think if you want to progress in in a, a competitive card game there's variance so you're gonna have to take losses so even if you play perfect you're not gonna win every event right so that's like the first thing you have to like own up to but then also no one's making no mistakes even the best players in the world are making mistakes right so it's kind of idea of trying to shift your mindset to be like uh, what's happened's happened and mistakes happened move on whether that's from the last game it's from the last turn or it's from the last tournament right like you say brendan um it's uh yeah and i also think it comes a little bit into what you just talked about almost comes in a little bit to like the you lost before you sat down as well right yeah. like just kind of that, that side of the game it's funny because card gamers are inherently like quite logical and quantitative in nature mm-hmm. But they are like the most lizard brain people sometimes when it comes to looking at stuff holistically. Like when you think about flesh and blood or you think about card games in general, like the, the actual, one of the core aspects of why you likely play the game or you likely enjoy the game is variance. But people, you know, they get unlucky. They don't want to match here that they thought they should have won, um, et cetera. Just, you know, they, they lose games and they, they're like, this is terrible. This is not for me, et cetera. But they don't sort of appreciate that, that is actually 
as as important to contributing to the experience as the wins because we've all felt this before and maybe you've played a video game you played something but if you win all the time games are actually not fun usually unless you're a psychopath like they're not fun so if you're if you talk about card game players they're quantitative right they're statistical they should be looking at the numbers so what is the exact amount of games that you can lose before you stop having fun before you stop self-doubting etc it's like it's completely subjective nobody actually has a number they like i don't i have to run into 80 20 clip or i'm out of this game but you know if they get them in it's just it's weird because it's so it's so slippery and like it's not a it's not a real thing but you know if you look at the game objectively flesh and blood is enjoyable to you most likely to a large part because of the variance I mean, I completely agree. Like, it's a hard one because, you know, I can sit here and I think I'm someone like you're saying yourself doesn't really get too affected by by tilt, right? But I'll tell you what, put me playing a video game and I make the same frigging cock up multiple times and I can't like, I was just playing some Spyro the other day, man, just casually <laughs> playing some Spyro. Me and my fiance were sitting on the couch and I was just like this little purple <laughs> dragon, man, I cannot get this up this uh ledge and was just like that annoyed me more than any kind of like mistake or variance in flesh and blood to be honest but everyone's personal right like it's all you have your own kind of things that that work or don't work for you and i think it's just about understanding that like and identifying self-identifying for me it's like okay like i i know that i can only play a video game for so long especially a tough video game like freaking give me a souls game man like a dark souls game whatever like i can only play that that shit for so long before I know I'm just going to implode. So it's like, I, and I'm aware of that. I make myself aware of that. And it's like, all right, two hours max. And like, I got to go do something else. That's fine. Right. That's, that's self-awareness. And I think it's the same in flesh and blood, right? It's like, okay, you know, if this event's not going your way, you've started, you know, and I, I wouldn't, you know, maybe you've started out 02, you win the next one, you lose the next one. It's like, for a lot of people, I would say like, you know, just play on and, you know, get the reps in, enjoy the day. For a lot of people, it's like, Nah, just drop and go and enjoy the rest of your day and get away from flesh and blood for a while. Like it's really going to be subjective based on the person, like you say. I actually, so. I actually think that if you're a human being, you actually you can't objectively sort of assess these situations. Not perfectly, no. right? No one has like the perfect mental game where they're appreciating the losses, appreciating the wins. That's why it, you know if you look at just the game. For me, the way that I solve this is I zoom out. I look at the experience and that's what makes flesh and blood fun for me is I think about it in the entirety of what's happening, right? It's traveling to the event. It's seeing my friends. It's going out to dinner. It's playing the tournament. It's playing the event. It's winning that match, et cetera. It's like, if you zoom out, it makes it a lot easier to deal with that mental load because ultimately the reason why you do all of this is to derive some amount of joy or feeling of fulfillment. And that doesn't have to come from the game itself. For sure. Oh yeah. I mean, I think you kind of just nailed it, to be honest. Yeah. All right, number <laughs> five. I just, number five. I, I just want to pull back quickly. Like, if you are, if you are, I think if you're trying to win more events, then let's just bring it back to the point that I think you, you know, you have to try and find the the ways to avoid this as much as possible. I think that's yes. kind of. And the fifth and last point is making errors. And Hayden, I'm just going to let you take this one from the top <laughs> because, you know, you and I don't know your association with three damage might be able to tell us a little bit about this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, this is going to be the hardest and the highest level one of all. But I think if someone says to me, what is the number one thing that separates Michael Hamilton from, yes. I don't know, Michael, Michael Buble, you're, you're uh, another Michael who plays locally in the, I don't know, whatever. Like, what's the number one thing, you know, separating like the average grinder at a pro quest, battle hard and calling pro tour level and, and pro tour winners? Honestly, it is making errors. Mm-hmm. 
And this sounds like the easiest thing. It's like, you know, oh, well, just don't make mistakes and you'll win events. Yeah, for sure. Don't make mistakes and, and, and you'll win events. But it's about, again, going on this like spectrum of reducing the amount of mistakes you make in an event. And there's so many things that go into this. I think the first of all is actually identifying that you're making mistakes. It's the hardest thing. Yes, um, you have to honestly. be good enough to recognize mistakes. It's like you actually have to be educated enough on the game to understand where you have made the mistake like when you play a game when you're early into flesh and blood um like that is just not something that you can do right and yeah, that's where sure. you over attribute things to variance and external factors or you self-blame too much you're blaming yourself too much when that you know there really was no way you could win that game and this is a concept mm -hmm. i literally already said in this pod but i think that I, when i first heard this i thought it was funny but it's actually so true it's like card games a, a game of flesh and blood is actually predetermined there's the there's the, the deviation throughout the game there's just a deviation from the form of the perfect game the perfect game is a predetermined game that exists already but you and your opponent just deviate from that and that is what playing flesh and blood is so the more mistakes you make the less the less likely you are to win the far you farther you away from from sort of playing your deck optimally. And I think that Flesh and Blood ultimately is not a game about making smart plays, making good plays, building good decks. It's just a game about not making mistakes. Not making errors. Yep, it's a game of not making errors. Literally, like I think has been one of my biggest kind of level ups and approaches is approaches a game of, of trying to reduce the number of errors that you make. And honestly, I will fully admit, easier said than done. But I can point to, and I honestly just think this is the, this is the difference. Like you have, a, you have a good day, you run well. And honestly, what I think running well all the time is, is like you just play, like you just didn't make mistakes mm -hmm. or you didn't make mistakes in the moments that counted the most, right? You know, uh, and that's where I think it honestly comes down to. And and I can point to, I, I will always make mistakes in events. I can't say I've ever gone through an event and not made a mistake, but there's been events where I've made bigger mistakes than others or more mistakes uh, than others. And, and honestly, those have led to, for me personally, things like, not not top hating a pro tour have led to things like not potentially you know winning a semi-finals at, at my nationals you know and and a lot of time and this is something that uh my fiance reminds me all the time she's like you can say this right and you can say you made this mistake but you can't say that would have determined the outcome of the game a lot of the time and that is very true like you know i can point to my top four mistake and the three damage like brennan says you know i could have been on three more life in my semi-final uh against farhad on kano right at this past nationals two weekends ago would that have determine the outcome of the game. No, not necessarily. The game could have played out very differently, right? Because now the life totals are different, Farhad plays in a different way, I've planned a different way, for instance. But, you know, like, I think I can point to that mistake and go, that was a fairly significant mistake, which definitely changes the the percentage yeah. of, of games I win in that situation, right? Yeah. So it, it's hard, it's hard. People look at uh, card games and they look at a game of flesh and blood and they'll, they'll pick out a variable like that and they'll say, well, if this didn't happen, then I would have won. But the, the, the truth of yeah. it is that if you change that single variable, the, the amount of permutations that, that branch off from that game are actually infinite, right? And you're doing yourself a disservice by thinking that the, uh, this would have won the game or this would. Maybe it was like you literally missed lethal, but if it's one of these mid game things, it's like, it's such, it's kind of like, like you said, it's like, it's important to recognize a mistake, to improve upon it and to appreciate it. But to look at it as like something that you lost that was taken away from you, it's like that, that's not real. Right. And it's not going to help yeah. you at all. So one of the things that helps with not making a mistake is another point that we talked about this pod, which is just preparedness is practicing. It's important in flesh and blood pattern recognition. Like that, that's key is like a lot of these players that play at the highest level, they make less mistakes. And a lot of it does come from practice. Some players are more gifted than others than, you know, maintaining sure. focus and making less mistakes or just critically thinking etc but you don't have to be 
it's not full talent. It's also practice. And the more reps you get on something and the more targeted and focused reps, like, you know, focus testing, et cetera, the better prepared you're going to be. And ultimately that should, it's not a guarantee, but that should lead to you making less mistakes during the game. I honestly think all four of the things we've talked before about, we're getting to this point are ways that if you improve will reduce the amount of errors you make even picking the right deck for instance for you in that situation you know mental sort of uh, fortitude heading to an, you know in a match that you think you you might not win for instance so i guess just let's talk quickly a few key points on like how to make less errors i think kind of from experience um i think one of these is knowing when to play a bit more methodically versus at uh, a normal or good or average pace of play there's times in a game where i think it is correct and warranted to just slow down a little bit and double check your math you know this could be a key turn in a game for instance like uh, a combo turn for kano uh this could be uh instances where you feel like you're about to take a load of damage to pivot you know like this this is a, a situation where more disproportionately than other turns of the game the impact of you deciding to to follow through with this play is going to impact the rest of the game more you know turn to turn doing the same kind of things blocking with two cards attacking with a, a card for instance you know like that is the small changes and that are going to be the changes sorry can be pretty small right but the turn where you decide to take all the damage and your life total reduces by 30 to 35 percent that now opens up a lot of different avenues for your opponent to progress with the game right you just talked about perfect games and, and making less errors so i think these are the turns where you need to take a little bit of a step back I'm not saying slow play or anything like that, but I'm saying just methodically play. And just knowing these points in the game, I think can really help you make these errors and identify them. Yeah. One thing it's, I don't know, it's kind of a smaller point, but I think it falls under. It's also playing to your outs. Um, I see a lot of players yep. accept defeat before it's actually real. Right. Oh. So mm -hmm. for instance, I was playing against the Briars Kano uh, at US Nationals. I was CMH quite early in the game as a little life total. And there was a point where my opponent was going to kill me on the next turn. And I didn't play to that out. I knew that I was going to die and I comboed and the combo was not effective, right? It didn't kill them. But I now sit at two life. My combo didn't work. The game is effectively over. You know what my opponent did on the next turn? They drew all non-attack actions and did nothing. <laughs> so I had held that combo and played to the out, the unlikely out, very unlikely out of them drawing full non-attack action hand there. I actually may have been able to win the game, but I didn't play. So there's a lot of ways to win a game of flesh and blood that might not be immediately available, especially when it looks like it's overwhelmingly not in your favor because your opponent can, although unlikely, potentially draw you into that win and if you play tight and you keep playing to that out you will find yourself winning many 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 more games of flesh and blood than you would if you sort of accept defeat early or just take the board mm -hmm. state for what it is because things i mean it is a variance based card game there's crazy things that can happen yeah taking the board state for the the, the way it is in in any given moment of time is can lead to, to errors right mm -hmm. because you're working two turns down the track you're working on old information right so that's another point i wanted to kind of talk about is uh just always assessing and asking yourself the questions like key questions and, and some of those key questions are what is the best scenario for my opponent here what's the best card they could have what are the ways that I can win from here. So playing to your outside brain said, what are the ways I can lose from here? Like what is what can my opponent have here that would result in not the kind of way this game playing out uh, being the way that I want it to be? What is my opponent likely to do here in this situation in response to what I'm about to do? Just trying to play a little bit ahead as much as possible. And this is going to vary for everyone, right? But I think all these things, if you can kind of approve them a little bit, they're going to lead to less mistakes because you're going to be ahead of the, the curve, right? You're going to be ready to uh, intercept potential mistakes that could be made and then the last thing is like 
just just board information you know there's often i think the mis a mistake people make is not responding to the information available to them especially on the other side of the board so for instance your opponent pitches like a really important card like you're playing it's brute and they pitch blood rush bellows it's like why did they pitch that blood mm -hmm. rush bellows like is it because they're trying to set up for second cycle or is it actually they just they couldn't have played on this turn because they have too many non-attack actions well that means that they could have pummel in their hand for instance like yeah. if they're playing you know like there's all these things that can lead to or the card in the arsenal is a blood rush bellow and it's like yeah it's like they, exactly. they likely have it already they're setting up for it on the following turn you know like mm -hmm. it, yeah it's important to sort of interpret the information you're presented with correctly because likely from where you start when you start playing flesh and blood to where you may be now or in the future you will be able to understand the information that's presented to you much better and that just comes with experience right because what your opponent pitches what they play the order they play it in you know maybe what they look at you know that can happen too tells you what they could possibly have like a very a funny thing that used to happen um that can happen with kano uh can happen with other like decks that interact with you know sonata arcanics when you see your when you see a runeblade opponent randomly <laughs> the first time the game start looking through the graveyard you're like okay why would they be doing that are they <laughs> exactly. fetching stuff from the graveyard are they trying to realize you know trying to figure out the math on the sonata arcanics you know how many non-attacks do they have etc it's like these are tells you know do you know things like I, you don't need to get into it, but there's, there's so many tells that happen in a game. Yeah, of your Viscera opponent looking through their graveyard, it's like, yeah, they've got uh, the the recursion card yeah, here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Grab out of ones. Yeah. Your opponent goes, "How many cards <laughs> in deck?" <laughs> like, <"Wow."> yeah. <laughs> your opponent, like your Dory opponent, starts looking through their graveyard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely have seen Steel Blade. <laughs> anyway, a lot of information you can garner. Uh, I think just quickly, you know, like in terms of like things to to work on, I think talking through mistakes that happened or errors that potentially could have happened post a game you know especially in in practice or at armory level i think is great to try and learn from you know how can you avoid that mistake next time um what strategies you know that, that could have helped in that situation um so yeah i mean one like one of the things for me is like you know i i had a player at my locals who was in the top eight of a of a um, draft road to nationals and they've got to put their phoenix flame in the graveyard as fire when they started the game and i just said to them you should put that phoenix flame with your hero just put it with your hero to make sure you don't make that mistake again, right? Like it's right there when you put your hero down. Anyway, Brendan, uh, I, I just kind of want to say to wrap this all up, this kind of, you know, why you aren't winning events, our five reasons why you aren't winning more events. Really, a lot of this comes down to there's no single one answer there, and there's no silver bullet and there's no, hey, we can help you immediately win more events. Unfortunately, we don't have a 10-step process to help you win uh, your pro quest this coming season. But I do think that all of these things are spectrums and things that you can just slight you know you can just continue to try and improve on continue to think about as focuses when you're you're trying to get prepared for an event when you're selecting a deck so you know we talked about bringing the wrong deck to an event we talked about losing before you sit down from a mental standpoint we talked about you aren't as prepared as your opponent uh in terms of the way you're using your time and and, and testing for instance uh you make compounding mistakes and tilt factor and then of course just trying to make less errors as a, as a good way to win more events yep I mean, I agree. I tend to favor the end that, you know, maybe I'm just not smart enough. I'm not good enough. And that, you know, it's, <laughs> now I think that if you're, Dude, if, if you're, game's hard. Yeah. If you're struggling <laughs> in flesh and blood and if you're analyzing losses, <laughs> there is a point at which blaming yourself too much is, is not the answer, right? Like maybe it was variance or maybe you simply just aren't good enough and like you don't need to overburden yourself with like maybe you're, you know, thinking you're bad at life or something. But I would say, on the aggregate, I think it's more healthy to look at 
yourself and blame yourself for mistakes and for losses, for wins as well, than it is to blame variance. I think you will, in the vast majority of scenarios, have a better learning experience from doing that than if you blame something like, oh, my draft pod just drafted wrong. It's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, definitely take try to take accountability for every aspect of your gameplay. Yeah, and look, lastly, um, have fun and enjoy it. It's a it's a game, right? Like, if you aren't taking joy and and enjoyment, I guess, from the process of preparing and, and playing events, like you know, I think that's a, a good reflection of is this what you want to spend yeah. your time doing? To right. be honest, like it's going to be different for everyone. Yeah, before you quit, though, zoom out, look at the whole thing, because if you think, for sure, for sure, for yeah, sure, if you think about it, I'm not for, saying quit. For, for most people, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, but for most people. Like, uh, I think it's easy to take loss after loss or go to an event, lose some money, uh, or just have that experience and like think that like, yeah, maybe this game is not for me anymore. If I looked back objectively or just like, uh, I try to be non-biased about my experience playing Flesh and Blood over the past three years, it's been pretty freaking epic. Like I've made tons of new friends. I've traveled the world. Like I've had great experiences, et cetera. So if I go to nationals and I don't make day two, is that enough to potentially forfeit sort of having those experiences again in the future it's like maybe not yet right maybe maybe yeah. i'll hit the drawing board again instead of uh instead of leaving the game yeah <clears throat> all right Brandon, take us out all right well for those of you losing games we hayden said there was no 10-step process but there actually is a one-step process you could just listen to this podcast and if you are listening to it <laughs> check it out on youtube at youtube.com slash arsenal pass and yeah i mean there's no chance you're gonna win games if you aren't if you aren't subscribed and if you're subscribed you might as well like you've been listening to arsenal pass for 126 episodes i know you're out there one of you that's not subscribed yet like what are you doing Jeez. Um, check us out on pod platforms. You can review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, one of the most impactful and beneficial things you can do to help us out. Check out the Arsenal Pass patient. We've got the Jermai deck tech up there. We've got the Kano deck tech um, up there probably soon after this releases, kind of around that time. Um, Peter, great Kano player, gave us some great resources to put up as additional if you want to check it out with the math and the cyborg guide, et cetera. So, and, um, you know, supporting us on Patreon, just it, it helps us do what we do and continue to to run Arsenal Pass. So we appreciate all of you that are current Patreons and say, uh, and, you know, big thank you to those who are about to be your future patrons. Um, and yeah, with that, that that concludes the episode. The, the top things you can do or the what you can do to stop losing games of flesh and blood. <laughs> How to win more events. How to win more events. <laughs> yes, I was, sorry, I, was, I was reframing. But thank you all so much for Fair listening. Enough. We'll see you next week. See you later.